This is the fourth lecture of Innovate 103 on the policy and governance of artificial intelligence. It begins by focusing specifically on Canada, then pivoting to discuss some concerns about AI on the global stage. This lecture will be slightly different than the previous two because I'm talking about up-to-the-minute contemporary concerns about AI as opposed to more lofty psychological and historical ideas. So it's very well possible that some of the ideas presented here will change in the coming years or even months. But here we are in May 2020, and I'm excited to survey the AI landscape together. Let's get started. Part 1. Oh, Canada. All technology is inherently political. As soon as any new technology enters our homes, our workplaces, and our governments, we must start to ask political questions, and AI is no exception. What rules are governing how it's developed? Where is it being developed? Who is funding it? What are the norms in place among the researchers? Is there a culture of openness and transparency, or is everything hidden behind industry secrets and patents? Is AI technology going to be equitably distributed, or will it just end up in the hands of an elite few? Can it be used for surveillance, in healthcare, in the legal system, in the military? What are the rules and norms in each of those industries? Will it lead to joblessness? Has it created new jobs? Or will it make all human cognitive functions completely obsolete? And maybe most importantly, is AI a transformative technology? Does it have the power to radically alter structures of wealth, power, and world order? These are the kinds of big questions we ask when thinking about AI policy and governance. In particular, governance does not simply mean laws. As you can see from the questions I just asked, laws are only one small part of this much broader landscape. Rather, governance consists of thinking about the trajectory a technology is on, the way it's going to affect the world, and the major levers that can be used to change its path, hopefully for the betterment of humanity. We will begin locally by exploring how some of these questions play out in Canada. You perhaps noticed in the previous lecture that I called out a number of prominent AI researchers, among them the deep learning pioneers Jeff Hinton and Joshua Bengio. This was not mere jingoism. It's simply the recognition that Canada is a hub for AI research and development. How did that come to be? There are two central reasons, and they are best summed up in an answer Jeff Hinton once gave when asked in an interview why he moved to Canada in 1987. Why did you choose this region to do your research? Well, I came to Canada because I like the society here and because they have very good funding for basic research. It's not much money, but they give it for basic curiosity-driven research as opposed to big applications. Only two sentences, but there is much to extract from Hinton's answer. First, 
did you notice the pregnant pause before he said big applications? Let's, uh, let's listen to that again. They give it for basic curiosity-driven research as opposed to big applications. What sorts of big applications is Hinton referring to? Well, if we recall our AI history, we'll remember that from its earliest days, AI and computing have been funded by the U.S. government and military, largely under the guise of the Department of Defense through DARPA. Things are no different today. Just a few months ago, in fact, the Trump administration's budget— while aggressively cutting many areas of scientific research, increased federal AI spending by a billion dollars. This investment is not out of the U.S. government's benevolent interest in the secrets of the human mind and how they might be implemented in machines. Rather, they recognize that AI has massive military potential, whether in autonomous drones or improved surveillance technologies. To give a concrete example, DARPA and IARPA, IARPA being the intelligence community's research body, DARPA, D for defense, IARPA, I for intelligence. These two agencies were actively seeking during the war in Afghanistan to develop a system that could be inputted an arbitrary image of a region in Afghanistan and tell you exactly where that footage was coming from. In addition to AI being used in the military, merely having a strong AI presence is itself a strategic position on the global stage, as we'll soon see. This military-industrial-scientific complex simply did not square with the political beliefs of Jeff Hinton and many other prominent AI researchers. One example is Rich Sutton, arguably the most important figure in the development of reinforcement learning, who arrived at the University of Alberta in 2003. He received his Canadian citizenship in 2015 and subsequently revoked his U.S. citizenship. It is difficult to overstate the influence of both Sutton and Hinton on AI research in this country and around the world. Yet another prominent AI pioneer is Joshua Bengio, who was born in France but raised in Canada, did all of his schooling at McGill, and spent only two years of postdoctoral research time at Bell Labs before swiftly returning to Canada. Bengio, whose work has turned almost entirely to researching the use of machine learning to combat climate change, surely feels more at home in the Canadian political climate too. So that's the first reason for Canada's AI success. Relative to the U.S., Canada's research environment is far less embedded with the military. The second reason that Hinton gives is that scientific research bodies were willing to embrace his work early on. Hinton is referring to an organization called the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, or CIFAR, which as early as 1983 was running a program on artificial intelligence, robotics, and society. You will recall that 1983 was precisely around the time that Japan announced its fifth-generation computing project, and the second AI spring began. CIFAR was founded the year prior, in 1982, and its role is basically to direct the flow of money and research time between academics, 
the government, private companies, individual philanthropy, and foundations, and to invest in interdisciplinary Canadian research. I would highly encourage you to look at some of their programs to see the research projects that they fund. CIFAR is a unique and, in my opinion, quite cool Canadian institution. That same program on AI, robots, and society also funded Joshua Bengio's doctoral research. CIFAR has continued to be a key supporter for AI research in Canada. For instance, in 2004, it initiated a research program called Neural Computation and Adaptive Perception, now renamed to Learning in Machines and Brains, with Hinton at the helm, supported by Bengio, as well as Jan LeCun, whom we spoke about last week for his work with Digit Recognition and MNIST. This begs a further question, which is, why was CIFAR investing in neural networks in the first place, even though they were unfashionable at the time? There is no obvious answer to this question. If you're wondering what I do as a historian of science, it's attempt to answer questions like this one. But I do have a speculative hypothesis. This should be taken with many grains of salt. This is just a hunch. Here goes. Canada is the birthplace of neural networks. And I don't just mean Jeff Hinton's neural network research in the 1980s. No, the history goes much further back to the Montreal Neurological Institute, part of McGill, founded by noted neurosurgeon Wilder Penfield in 1934. One of the researchers at the Neurological Institute was Donald Hebb, who studied how the brain could regenerate function after a seizure or stroke, and he also studied the effects of various types of electrical stimulation on brain activity. In 1949, Hebb published an extremely influential volume called Organization of Behavior, in which he attempts to explain how learning works at the neuronal level. Hebb's basic theory is summed up by the simple phrase, Cells that fire together, wire together. That is, the synaptic strength between two neurons increases as a presynaptic cell repeatedly sends signals to a given postsynaptic cell. The key idea of Hebbian learning is that the strength of connections between neurons can change. And this is precisely the idea that Frank Rosenblatt implemented into his perceptron in which as we've seen, is still the key idea behind neural networks today, the changing of weights between nodes in response to new training data. I have a hunch, though I cannot yet prove, that there is some overlap between the students who trained in neurophysiology in Montreal in the 1950s and those who helped influence the research agenda at CIFAR in its early days. There is another fantastic story to be told here about the early days of computing at U of T. If you want to go deeper into that one, I encourage you to look up the Ferret, F-E-R-U-T, Canada's first major computer. And finally, I would be remiss here if I did not mention one of Hebb's students, Brenda Milner, who started doing research at the Neuro in the late 1940s and is now 101 years old still doing neuropsychological research in Montreal. Absolute legend. Okay, 
back to our scheduled programming. So, all of this is to say that the neural network as we now understand it was born in Canada and grew up in Canada under the direction of Jeff Hinton, who arrived in the country in 1987. We've already heard the story of how this work paid off in the last decade, but where do things stand now? Well, in 2017, the federal government gave CIFAR $125 million to create a pan-Canadian AI strategy. CIFAR decided to use that money to support three principal projects. The first is establishing three major centers of research— the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute, or AMI, in Edmonton, the Vector Institute in Toronto, and the Montreal Institute for Learning Algorithms, or MILA. These three centers are each affiliated with their respective cities' universities and train graduate students, produce research, and the goal is for them to become hubs of academic research. The second part of the pan-Canadian AI strategy is funding research positions across the country. In many cases, universities are actively recruiting Canadians who are living or working abroad to return to Canada or trying to get prominent researchers to come to Canada for the first time. As a country, Canada has long been concerned about brain drain Canadians venturing off to the United States or elsewhere in pursuit of more opportunity or lucrative positions. So this investment by CIFAR is a proactive move to prevent that brain drain. Another concern is the idea of Canada becoming a branch plant economy, which is a phenomenon where companies based in the United States set up subsidiary offices in Canada. Think, for instance, about the offices of Facebook or Google or Microsoft in Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver. These companies are employing Canadian workers, but their profits eventually end up in the U.S. By retaining Canadian talent, CIFAR's hope is that researchers will help spin out new companies that stay in Canada and therefore keep the profits at home. The third pillar of the CIFAR strategy is an AI and society program. This has mostly involved a series of workshops around the country that have asked policymakers and the public what they would like to see happen with the governance of AI. The discussions that took place at these workshops give a good sense for what AI policy in Canada looks like right now. These included recommendations for curriculum reform, in professions that might get automated, policies that will encourage competition among firms and minimize the potential for monopolies, ensuring that individuals' data is protected in compliance with privacy law, and holding public consultations before any major steps are taken in policy or AI development. But as you can see, the policy life cycle is long, Before anything can be encoded into legislation by the government, this type of research and public consultation is crucial to understand people's concerns and distill the important problems. While we're here, I want to take a brief second to ask a question that probably seems very simple and obvious. Who is the government? When I say that the Canadian government gave CIFAR $125 million to spend on AI, who makes that decision 
And where does that money come from? Well, here's one very quick answer. At the highest level, the government consists of two parts. Elected officials, who are the people you've heard of and can vote for, and the civil service. Elected officials run for office in political parties. They are term-limited, and they get to decide the priorities for the country. Their vision is typically then executed by the civil service, which is a 65,000-person-strong workforce in Canada. These people are not affiliated with any particular political party. Their positions are basically permanent, and they typically work within one particular area of expertise, like environment or science policy or finance. So these are the people running the country. And when they want to do something, say invest in AI development, what can they actually do in practice? Well, there are a number of things the government has the power to do. The government can pass legislation, that is to say, enact new laws in the legislature with rules on what people or companies are or are not allowed to do. The government can provide subsidies or create taxes, that is, put its foot on the scale to make things more or less expensive. It can provide information and education through public awareness campaigns. It can hire external contractors to engage in particular kinds of work. Or in the case of technology, it can even enact controls over the import and export of goods. It's worth contemplating that the government could have done any of these things when deciding to pursue an AI strategy. It could have run ad campaigns trying to convince AI researchers to stay in Canada, or increased taxes on imports of critical machine learning infrastructure to encourage manufacturing at home, or implemented subsidies on tensor processing units, or anything else. But it didn't choose these things. It chose instead to use CIFAR to coordinate this $125 million investment, which, it should be said, is pennies compared to the multi-hundred billion dollar overall Canadian government budget. I think it would be a valuable exercise for you to pause and think about what you would do if you were the federal government and had to design some policy to improve AI R&D in Canada. Or maybe that doesn't align with your politics, and instead you think we should be focusing exclusively on privacy law or the maligned effects of surveillance capitalism. Whatever your particular interest is, think through in your mind, if I were the government, what would I do in concrete steps using the frameworks I've described here? And bear in mind, the government is huge, and its actions have the potential to benefit or harm a huge proportion of the country. So in many ways, it's harder than you'd think. While Canada was the first country to announce a national AI strategy, many others soon followed suit. In 2017 alone, Singapore, Japan, and China, with some others, got on the map. Then in 2018, France, which made a mammoth 1.5 billion euro investment in AI. Denmark, the UK, the EU, South Korea, India, Germany, Mexico, Kenya, and many more announced their plans for national AI strategies. Even more countries have followed suit since 2018. It's a reminder that while Canada is undoubtedly a leader in this field, we are but one very small part of a massive global ecosystem of science and innovation. 
Right now, it seems to many that AI is the battleground on which global innovation is being fought. These national AI strategies are viewed by some as declarations of scientific and technological war, a race to global AI supremacy. In the ominous words of Vladimir Putin, whoever leads in AI will rule the world. Part 2. Whoever leads in AI will rule the world? Well, okay, this quote is not quite accurate. Putin did not announce this statement at some daring Russian global governance strategy. He said it as a somewhat off-the-cuff remark at an event for high school students in September 2017. Moreover, Russia is currently far behind in being a global AI leader, spending the equivalent of maybe $10 million per year. So rumors of a global AI arms race are greatly exaggerated, and I would encourage you to use the example I just presented as a reminder to be skeptical of much of what appears exciting or newsworthy on this topic. Many outlets are simply looking for clicks and they can put this quote over an ominous-looking picture of Putin and get a lot of them. That being said, there is a lot to learn about the different actors on the global AI stage by studying international politics. Here is a crash course on the major institutions that are doing fundamental research in AI. First and foremost, basic research in AI is being done in computer science mathematics, and statistics departments at all major universities around the world. The biggest universities doing this research are, incredibly, the same institutions that housed the AI pioneers of the 1960s. As you'll recall, John McCarthy spent his career at Stanford, Marvin Minsky at MIT, and Newell and Simon at Carnegie Mellon. And if you look at the major papers submitted to the three biggest machine learning conferences, which are the Neural Information Processing Systems, or NERIPS, the International Conference on Machine Learning, or ICML, and the International Conference on Learning Representations, or ICLR, you will see that these three universities, Stanford, MIT, and Carnegie Mellon, are still at the top of the list, along with other obvious players like Oxford, Berkeley, Harvard, and ETH Zurich. However, these universities have in recent years been left in the dust by an even bigger producer of fundamental research, private companies. Google, with its subsidiary DeepMind, Microsoft, and Facebook in particular, are absolutely dominant in these research areas. Corporations have more money, more computing power, and more data than any university. How can MIT possibly compete with the sheer quantity of information Google has in its databases? And they're also able to offer top graduate students and professors a salary they might not ever receive in academia. Let let me just pause here for a second to explain just how high of a salary the top AI researchers can command. It is an exorbitant amount, 
sometimes in the millions of dollars, far closer to what you might expect a hedge fund manager or NFL player to make than a university physics professor. An example here is someone like Ian Goodfellow, the inventor of generative adversarial networks, the technique that's used to create the adversarial patched we discussed a couple weeks ago. Goodfellow did his PhD with Joshua Bengio at the University of Montreal, then promptly left for a job at Google Brain and is now at Apple. Many people in the academy have therefore been concerned about professors getting scooped away into industry, though there have also been collaborative models where professors can split time between their university commitments and jobs at Google or Facebook. Another unusual actor here is OpenAI, which was founded in 2015 by, among others, Elon Musk, prominent Silicon Valley investor Sam Altman, and AlexNet co-developer Ilya Sutskever. In the mid-2010s, Elon Musk began expressing fears that artificial intelligence could develop the ability to program itself into superhuman intelligence, leading perhaps to the extinction of humanity. OpenAI was therefore founded in the spirit of countering this existential risk by developing so-called friendly AI, the idea being that smarter-than-human computers are inevitable, so we'd better get to it first and make sure that it complies with human interests. So far, they have mostly invested in algorithms that can play video games. OpenAI also created GPT-2, which we discussed last week. The organization started as a nonprofit, but is now commercializing some of its technology in partnership with Microsoft. All of this discussion thus far has been very Western-centric, but it's also important to note that Chinese universities and firms have been ramping up their AI research substantially over the last couple decades. In 2017, China released a strategic plan outlining its intention to lead the world in AI research and innovation by 2030. In particular, three main Chinese companies have substantial AI labs. Alibaba, which is best compared to Amazon. Tencent, which is well known for the messaging app WeChat. And Baidu, which started off as a search engine, but is now many other online services and is probably best compared to Google. So these three companies, Alibaba, Baidu, and Tencent, are often referred to as BAT, or BAT. We can contrast this with what's often called the big four American companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple, or GAFA. You can, you can choose your own acronym. Moreover, Major Chinese universities like Peking or Tsinghua University are becoming substantial contributors to the large conferences I've already mentioned. Though the U.S. is still indisputably the global leader in AI, especially in terms of fundamental groundbreaking research, Chinese firms and the Chinese government are more advanced in terms of implementing tools like facial recognition into day-to-day life. Though... Make no mistake, the U.S. government and law enforcement agencies are engaging in their own facial recognition programs, too. People often paint China and the U.S. as being complete adversaries when it comes to AI, but this is not really an accurate picture. 
I mean, simply consider all the ways that China and the U.S. are totally interdependent in their scientific research. Consider the number of Chinese students training in American universities and vice versa. The importance of exports to the U.S. for the Chinese economy and the U.S.'s complete reliance on Chinese manufacturing, as well as the mutual exchange of scientific and mathematical ideas between them. All of these things point towards more U.S.-China collaboration, not competition. On the other hand, it is definitely true that AI can be used for leverage in a bigger U.S.-China trade conflict, whether that means either country imposing export controls on their products or tightening knowledge away from open disclosure and tending more towards trade secrets. There are also some fairly complicated concerns about Taiwan, which is one of the world's leading centers of semiconductor chip manufacture and receives quite a lot of military support from the U.S., while mainland China is seeking to establish full unification of Taiwan. All of this is to say that there are some hugely complicated international relations, supply chain, and global economic concerns at play when we talk about U.S.-China relations and AI. It would therefore be quite naive to paint anything under the simple heading of the U.S. and China are at war over AI. So I would once again encourage you to be highly suspicious and skeptical of any narrative that frames it in that way. The international AI research community is in many ways a unique one, since they place a strong value on openness and the sharing of models and ideas. This likely has its roots in the history of computer science and mathematics. Mathematics has long been a profoundly international and collaborative discipline. The barriers to entry are quite low, a blackboard or piece of paper are sufficient, and most countries on Earth recognize mathematics as a crucial part of education. For historical reasons, mathematics is an unusually ego-free discipline. To give just one example, papers are published with the authors listed in alphabetical order, as opposed to the order of contribution, which causes many qualms in other fields. Computer science is essentially an outgrowth of the mathematical community, and it too has strong practices of openness. Much of contemporary software engineering relies on open-source maintained packages that distributed teams of dozens or hundreds of programmers are working on for minimal, if any, money. The World Wide Web itself is supported by networks of volunteers who do thankless digital maintenance work. But as AI research becomes increasingly done in private research firms, and as it becomes increasingly tangled with government interests, it remains to be seen how these norms change and whether the voices of researchers in this field can continue to carry the same weight they do today. It's also worth noting that the groups I'm describing here are just those engaged in basic, fundamental, cutting-edge AI research and are therefore only one small part of the whole AI ecosystem. There are companies who take these insights and translate them into big business solutions that can be used by freight companies or telecommunications companies or defense contractors or the government. There are startups 
who apply these technologies to innovate in new areas that have the capacity to do immense amounts of good, like developing text-to-speech apps for people with visual impairments, or immense amounts of harm, like companies that can generate fake videos of real people. But it's one thing to think about small companies doing bad things, and it's a whole other issue to contemplate how AI can be used for ill on the global scale. This brings us to our next topic. Part 3. The Malicious Use of AI AI is what's known as a dual-use technology. This simply means that it can be used for both civilian and military aims. Another example of a dual-use technology is missiles, which can be used for deploying harmless satellites or space research, but can equally be used to drop a nuclear weapon. AI might even be more versatile as a technology, since it can be used to improve everything from Snapchat filters to autonomous drone attacks. What follows is a run-through of some of the major threats that AI-enabled systems might pose in the near term. I am largely following the Malicious Use of AI report, which was published in 2018 by a group led by Miles Brundage at the Future of Humanity Institute. As I discuss these topics, I really want you to think, what should governments, companies, and international bodies like the UN or the EU or the AI research community do about them? One important reason that you should think about these things is because there is no correct answer. The ideas I'm presenting you are still being hashed out across the world, so we're on the cutting edge here. The goal is not to scare or alarm you. It's just to get you thinking about the kinds of things that security experts are working through right now. Let's put on our policy hats and dive in. Let's begin with digital security. Imagine a situation where, instead of receiving generic, fake-looking emails that are clearly spam or contain malware, you receive a message that authentically looks like something you are deeply interested in. What if a scam email used all the available information about your online shopping habits to send you something that looked exactly like the type of thing you wanted? Or if not an email, a targeted ad on social media? How about AI-assisted improvements in the capacity to hack into old and vulnerable Wi-Fi-connected devices? Your newest generation iPhone is probably safe, but older devices and Internet of Things-enabled devices like smart fridges, microwaves, and doorbells could easily be vulnerable to being held hostage by malware. They could even demand a ransom from the user in Bitcoin to be able to re-access their data. Yet another example involves CAPTCHA systems. You know how you often need to do some sort of difficult task when signing up for a website to prove that you're a human? For instance, maybe you need to read some blurry letters or numbers or click on images of a stop sign or even just click inside of a box to confirm that you're a human. What are those things anyway? Well, the original idea behind CAPTCHA when it began over a decade ago was that by identifying blurry letters or numbers, 
users on a website were effectively labeling data for free. Oftentimes, the CAPTCHA system would provide some blurry letters it had already labeled just to verify that you are, in fact, a human, and then some letters it had not yet labeled. You and millions of other users would then identify those letters, which actually came from the Google Books archive. So in filling in those little boxes, you were helping make an entire corpus of digital text searchable. Moreover, that new data could then be used as training data on an improved computer vision system. But there's a problem. As computer vision systems get better, they would also become more capable of hacking into CAPTCHA systems. So, the tasks need to keep getting harder and harder. You can see the evolution of the state of the art in computer vision as you follow CAPTCHA over time. In 2010, you were labeling Google Books text. By 2012, you were labeling images of cats. In the last few years, you've been asked to pick out cars and stop signs because, you guessed it, that data is being used to train a self-driving car. All of this is to say that a system that can beat CAPTCHA would be able to take advantage of major vulnerabilities. This also includes the capacity to mimic human mouse-moving patterns that can simulate, from the computer's perspective, the experience of clicking the I am not a robot button. Let's now turn away from digital security and move to physical security. One obvious physical security threat from AI is the use of autonomous drones in military and even non-military settings. It is possible, in principle, for a malicious actor to masquerade as an Amazon delivery drone and be used to carry out a terrorist attack in a heavily populated area. You don't even have to think about drones like the kind used in a military setting to be worried about robots being hacked for malicious purposes. Millions of people have house-cleaning robots, businesses increasingly use service robots, and there are more and more aquatic and aerial robots coming onto the market. None of these bots are inherently evil. They have no thoughts or ideas. They just do what they're programmed. And if they're programmed to identify and harm a human, that's what they'll do. AI can also be used to make the aiming of precision weapons more effective, which could make certain types of guns even more dangerous than they already are. Even self-driving cars are exposed to vulnerabilities and could, in principle, be hacked into, resulting in potential fatalities. We also spoke about the potential for adversarial attacks on self-driving cars and other technologies. As a final category, let's consider political security. As one example, governments can make use of AI to suppress political dissent. They can proactively target people who might be quote-unquote dangerous by monitoring their online behavior. Think about how many orders of magnitude more effective, well, effective from the point of view of governments and intelligence agencies, Surveillance could be when all behavior on all CCTV cameras can be analyzed in an instant and algorithms can comb through all text, image, and video 
published on the internet in a fraction of the time humans can. There are already predictive systems in place to determine which individuals are at risk of committing crimes. It's not too far of a leap to believe that this could extend to thought crimes, too. One of the most common and publicized nefarious applications of AI is to generate and spread fake news. This means multiple things. First, there is the capacity to specifically target disinformation to the places where it can be most harmful. For instance, racist or anti-Semitic content can be specifically disseminated to individuals whom an algorithm has identified as easily persuadable. The same could be done with political disinformation about a particular candidate or party. A second type of fake news is the generation, with so-called deep fakes, of actual fake news reports featuring the faces and voices of people who appear to be real but are actually computer-generated. That was a lot. These risks all seem quite scary, and they're made all the more scary, in my view, by the fact that they're not that far-fetched. But there are a few things to consider before becoming too afraid. One is that there are people around the world working full-time on these issues. Cybersecurity experts, AI security researchers, and governments are aware of these threats and identifying new ones all the time. There are regulations being discussed, for instance, to strengthen the requirements for testing of hardware to ensure that robots are more difficult to hack. Companies and researchers are trying to develop fake news detectors and improve fact-checking tools. Of course, these tools might raise more questions than they answer about what actually constitutes fake news, but that gets into political and epistemological areas we don't need to discuss here. As individuals also become more aware of the issues I'm discussing, the risks can decrease substantially. As early as elementary school, curricula include lessons on digital literacy that will make individuals less likely to fall prey to malware attacks or get fooled by a deep fake. That being said, this means that the most vulnerable people to these attacks are individuals who are older, less well-educated, or of lower socioeconomic status, who might not be aware of or able to afford the protections that some others can. Here's one final point to illustrate just how difficult it is to predict how these things will play out. When people express concern about deep fakes, it's important to remember Photoshop, which has been around now for three decades. The ability to modify images to be completely deceiving or harmful is already with us. AI is simply increasing the speed and efficiency at which it can be done. There are so many directions this could take us. Deepfakes could become pervasive and dangerous, affecting political outcomes and eroding all trust in traditional institutions of power because anyone can appear to say anything at any time. Or deepfakes could be an easily dismissible background part of everyday life, like the fact that all magazine covers are photoshopped and we've just come to accept it. 
More likely, the outcome will be somewhere in the middle. But either way, it will require incredible work on the part of computing experts, social scientists, government bureaucrats, engineers, and more. I'd like to now pivot slightly and address one more measure being taken to address concerns about the potential harms caused by AI. Companies, governments, and community-based organizations are all working to define a set of principles that can guide the development of AI technology. It seems over the past few years, there have been two parallel races happening among the world's major AI companies. First, there is the usual drive to outcompete each other technologically. But second, there's a race to produce the most robust and authoritative set of AI ethics guidelines. This has given rise to a veritable cottage industry of AI ethics statements. Everyone from Google to Microsoft to the European Union has one. There's even one in Canada. It's called the Montreal Declaration for the Responsible Development of AI, and it was announced in December of 2018 at the G7 Multi-Stakeholder Conference on Artificial Intelligence. You are likely aware that the G7 is a group of seven major countries around the world. Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the United States. And this meeting in Ottawa saw ministers of innovation and science from all of these countries gather to discuss AI, accountability, and the future of work. The Montreal Declaration had been announced a year prior and was worked on over the course of a year through consultations, workshops, and public forums. The end result of all of this work was 10 basic principles. Here they are. Well-being, respect for autonomy, protection of privacy, solidarity, democratic participation, equity, diversity inclusion, prudence, responsibility, and sustainable development. Obviously, these are vague categories and the document goes into great detail to explain what they all mean. The Montreal Declaration is, to me, quite a moving document which affirms the importance of technology that serves humanity, not the other way around. But when confronted with the Montreal Declaration and other documents like it, we must ask, do these principles signal a genuine desire for ethics in AI among its researchers, or are they simply a veneer designed to appease critics and investors? Well, it's complicated. The rush of AI ethics documents that began in 2017 likely arose because academics and think tanks were becoming increasingly concerned that AI researchers were not taking ethics seriously. There were reports that algorithms were biased, such as facial detection apps being unable to recognize darker-skinned faces or predictive policing programs judging people of color more harshly and stories about self-driving cars crashing and leading to driver fatalities, and in 2018, even a crash that killed a pedestrian. There were also concerns within big tech companies that their products would be used for military purposes. Google, for instance, 
was contracted by the Department of Defense to provide tools and expertise to analyze drone footage. This contract was part of a DOD program called Project Maven, and the story first became public when Google employees began to express anger and frustration that their work was being put to use in warfare or weaponry. In April 2018, 3,000 Google employees signed an open letter to the CEO demanding the company pull out of the program. In June of 2018, Google released its first set of AI principles. Google's AI principles are fairly standard, echoing many of the same ideas in the Montreal Declaration. Social benefit, avoiding bias, safety, accountability, and privacy. But interestingly, it also suggests that Google will not pursue applications in a few key areas. It won't use its AI to do harm, won't pursue weapons technologies, won't do surveillance that violates international norms, and won't use its technology to do anything that violates international law and human rights. Of course, there's a lot of fuzziness here. International norms are a blurry category, and there are plenty of Department of Defense or military applications of AI that aren't directly related to weaponry, such as cybersecurity or veteran healthcare. Another interesting reaction to increased concern about AI ethics came in the form of the Partnership on AI, officially called the Partnership on AI to Benefit People and Society. The Partnership on AI is a loose association of major AI companies who together try to establish the best practices for ethics and research in AI development. It was founded by the usual players, Amazon, Facebook, Google, DeepMind, Microsoft, and IBM. It now has over 100 partners, many of them international, including groups we've talked about here like CIFAR and Baidu. It, too, has ethics principles, among them safety, fairness, and social good. One final organization in this space is the Future of Life Institute, a non-profit research institute, much like a think tank, based in Boston. It organized a major conference in 2017 in Asilomar, California, where researchers and companies and policy leaders gathered to discuss the very issues we're speaking about right now and produce the Asilomar AI principles. This document contains the usual suspects, along with some other interesting principles— human values alignment, shared benefit and prosperity, non-subversion, that is, AI should only improve, never subvert the civic process, and the avoidance of an AI arms race. The location of Asilomar for this meeting is actually quite important, since this was the site of a big conference in the history of bioethics in the 1970s. After the discovery of recombinant DNA, Stanford researcher Paul Berg called for a moratorium, or a pause, on all recombinant DNA research and convened this meeting to discuss whether his discovery could be used for harm, perhaps in bioweapons or for cloning or in genetically modified organisms. That conference led to a set of guidelines for the safe use of genetic technology. 
This, in essence, was the goal of the 2017 AI Asilomar Conference. How should we think about these companies teaming up to share ethical principles and publishing their own ethics guidelines? Well, we can choose to interpret this positively. Important and prominent organizations are taking clear ethical stands. They are advocating against AI being used in combat or warfare, and they're converging on a universal set of principles that all actors in this space can agree to. Those are all undoubtedly great things. On the flip side, we can choose to interpret these ethics guidelines as mere platitudes produced in response to growing public demand for AI ethics or even in response to a PR disaster like Project Maven. These principles are not binding, and it's difficult to know from the outside in what ways these companies are actively implementing them. So only time will tell. Part 4. Preparing for Human Obsolescence To close out this lecture, I would like to discuss in depth one particular area that policymakers are focusing on right now. Automation and the job market. I am deliberately leaving out other important topics like data regulation and privacy, healthcare and algorithmic bias, because in coming lectures, those will be topics that we will go into in great detail. There are a lot of people who are very afraid that AI is going to take all of our jobs and do to us what cars did to the horse-drawn carriage. There are two main things to know about this claim. First, no one can truly know the effect of technological development in the coming decades. Second, any overblown claim you've heard is almost certainly exaggerated, whether by inflammatory headlines or straight-up fear. The real information on this topic is contained in extremely boring economics papers, and those are generally filled with an overriding spirit of uncertainty. However, there are still some things we can say with confidence. The first is that throughout history, technology has resulted in the displacement of labor. As we've already seen, improved weaving technologies reduced the child labor force in the textile industry. Another example is the mechanization of agriculture, in the 1870s, one half of the workforce was in agriculture and farming. Today, that number is closer to 2%. And computers, who used to spend their days doing computations on numbers, were replaced with, well, computers. At the same time as technology displaces labor, it is also able to increase productivity. The productivity of an individual farmer today, with their extremely sophisticated machinery, is leagues higher than the productivity of an individual farmer a hundred years ago. Moreover, new technology also creates new jobs. Yes, the car did away with the horse-drawn carriage industry, but also gave rise to the automobile manufacturing industry, the long-haul trucking industry, the oil and gas industry, the highway paving industry, among many, many others. 
Similarly, computers have given rise to software engineers, UX designers, web developers, hardware manufacturers, and computer salespeople, not to mention Amazon Mechanical Turk workers and data labelers, just to name a couple of the less recognized jobs. Another key point about automation is that just because a job has been automated doesn't mean it's been automated by AI. There are many technologies that have nothing to do with machine learning that can take jobs. Automated bank machines and screens that can take your order at McDonald's require no deep learning, and yet they are actively displacing jobs. What's more, jobs can disappear due to outsourcing, which requires no automation at all. We have seen during the COVID-19 pandemic that the manufacturing of many essential items, like ventilators and Q-tips, has been outsourced over the last few decades to countries like China and Taiwan, which has in many cases been a source of job loss in North America. Economists have for a very long time tried to determine which tasks and which professions are automatable then predict what might happen to the people working in those professions. One thing to appreciate here is that this task is extremely difficult because most jobs involve a stunning array of tasks. If you are a millwright, that is, a person who builds and maintains machinery, your job involves much more than repetitively banging a hammer. You might need to engage with clients, develop work plans, coordinate a team, make decisions about what types of tools to use on a particular job site, and much, much more. Similarly, if you're a doctor, your job involves diagnosing patients, sure, but also assuaging concerns, providing care, consoling families, filing paperwork, and writing messy signatures on prescription forms. This all being said, there are some things we can predict with relative confidence about automation and AI. Two of the things that will be most difficult to automate out of existence are empathy and the ability to code. This means that people who work in professions that involve caring for people, managing people, or supporting people, and individuals who work in high-skilled technical areas are at low risk of automation. We will also likely see many people retraining into those professions, and it will likely become increasingly common for people to leave jobs midway through their career to retool and pivot. On the flip side, it might become increasingly common for companies to hire contract or gig workers instead of full-time staff which puts workers in an extremely precarious position. Again, it's not necessarily deep learning or AI that's causing these tasks to be automated. Economists are very uncertain about the root cause of much of this. But it is highly probable that over the last 30 years, an increasing number of tasks are being automated and often without being replaced by new tasks for workers. Some theorists have argued that this has led to a rise in what's known as bullshit jobs, and others have advocated the necessity of a universal basic income to ensure that people always have the means to survive, even if their job does not exist 
at some point in the future. One other idea that's being proposed is called the windfall clause. The idea is that if a company strikes it big, producing an AI system whose profits give massively outsized returns, they should redistribute that wealth. This donated wealth could compensate the unemployed, mitigate inequality, and smooth over the inevitable economic transition. All of these ideas should be read or listened to with a strong sense of uncertainty. No one knows how many jobs AI will destroy, and fewer can anticipate what it might create. Much more work is needed to understand the root causes of automation, a trend which has been progressing steadily since the 1970s. It may be the case that AI is truly disruptive to the labor market, but it also might be the case that these trends are affected orders of magnitude more by, say, a massive move to remote distributed work in the wake of a global pandemic. The one overarching thing that I implore you to think carefully about is when you walk into a McDonald's and you see a screen taking your order instead of a person, you shouldn't think, AI, because this screen is very basic technology that requires very little in the way of AI. I mean, granted, there is probably some sort of machine learning happening at some point, but that is not, quote unquote, AI taking our jobs. That is just automation, and that is a normal phenomenon that economists study and could very well have detrimental effects to the economy that we have already seen. But conflating that with AI is where I think things become a little bit dangerous. Either way, one thing ought to be clear from this entire lecture. There are a huge number of policy and governance issues that are still wide open. I have addressed many concerns about the malicious uses of AI, about potential international conflict related to AI, and about potential dangers from job loss and automation. But I also believe that there are even more opportunities at hand. AI has the potential to do a great deal of harm, but also a great deal of good, provided that it's developed, managed, and deployed properly. We should rise to the challenge. <laughs>